You're listening to another episode of the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast on the Two Guys Talking Podcast Network. Welcome to the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast hosted by me, Dr. Mark Halstead. I cover current hot topics and recent research in the world of the young athlete relevant to healthcare professionals. This is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. One of the things I've loved about doing this podcast is the ability to educate people. But it's not only for the education of my listeners, but for me personally as well. In preparation for each episode, I usually review some articles, some various online resources to come up with an outline of our discussion. I'll sometimes have guests send me their presentations they've made on the topic just to give me a better idea of what they like to discuss on a particular topic. Today, we're going to talk about something that I'm familiar with being a sports medicine physician, but an area I honestly don't have much personal experience with. So I'm excited and interested and ready to learn more about adaptive sports medicine. I hope you are as well. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this is the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. On the podcast today, I have two guests. My first guest is Dr. Stephanie Tao. Dr. Tao completed a PM&R residency, followed by two fellowships in pediatric rehabilitation medicine and pediatric sports medicine. Dr. Tao is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation at the University of Colorado in the Departments of Pediatric Rehabilitation Medicine, Pediatric Sports Medicine, and Pediatric Pain Medicine at Children's Hospital Colorado. She has a passion for working with athletes of all abilities, including adaptive and parasports athletes. Prior to moving back to Colorado, she was the former director of the Dallas-Fort Worth Adaptive Sports Coalition. She has served as a team physician and medical director for many adaptive sports events and organizations. She is currently the head team physician and a medical classifier for the U.S. Paralympic Swimming National Team. My second guest is Dr. Kyle Nagel. Dr. Nagel earned his MD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison Medical School, Go Badgers, and his MPH from the University of Washington while focusing on physical activity promotion. He completed his residency at Seattle Children's and the University of Washington, and then completed his primary care sports medicine fellowship at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Dr. Nagel has been a team physician at the high school, collegiate, and elite levels. He is the head team physician for the U.S. Paralympics Nordic Ski Team and a team physician for the U.S. Ski and Snowboard and U.S. Nordic Ski Team. He has also been an international medical classifier for the International Paralympics Committee in Nordic Skiing and Biathlon. His interests include athlete development, including resiliency, recovery, and continued lifelong athletic involvement for all ages and abilities. Welcome to the podcast, Kyle and Stephanie. Thanks, Mark. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, this is fun. I'm, I'm excited about this episode. I've been actually wanting to do an episode on this for quite some time. This is going to be a good one. It's going to be helpful for me, like I said. I'm really excited to have you both on the podcast today. And it's just an area I haven't had much experience in personally in the adaptive sports medicine world. I'm sure that's probably familiar for a lot of us in sports medicine. There's there's a few that I think have a more heavy interest and involvement. I did a podcast episode actually with a former St. Louis Rams player, David Vibora. He created the Adaptive Training Foundation down in Dallas. That was something I got an opportunity to see. And I was just fascinated with what he was doing down there as a former athlete, where he was working with wounded veterans who had all sorts of disabilities and just really inspiring them to get more active again, just getting them a, a place of belonging. And his work has really blossomed there. And I encourage anybody, if you get a chance to go see it down in Dallas to check it out and always reach out to me and I can get you hooked up with David Vibora. And I've had patients here and there, but never done any organized coverage for adaptive sports athletes. So I'm really interested in getting your perspective and hearing about your experiences in this area. So why don't we just start off with how we define adaptive sports and adaptive athletes? Adaptive sports are basically just competitive recreational sports or activities for folks with disabilities or impairments can be physical or intellectual. And sometimes there's very similar to normal sports that we think about for normally abled persons. And some sports are just in the adaptive 
fields, such as goalball, which is a kind of a sport for visually impaired persons that I had never seen a normally abled person do. But in general, these adaptive sports allow for some modifications in the rules and equipment used. That's kind of the, the definition I, I generally work with. Stephanie, how about you? Yeah, adaptive sports, I think, is one term. You may also hear the term para sports. I think there are older terms that have been phased out over time as, as culture has become more sensitive. But those are the two, I think, that are most commonly used. I've read some articles out there that delineate between adaptive and para sports. I think, you know, adaptive connotes that a sport, a traditional sport has been adapted in a sense to be more inclusive of people with all different types of abilities, whereas para the term para sports actually came from, I think back in the day, I've heard that it came from sports for people with paraplegia or paraparesis. But then over time, now it kind of, it's evolved to be like, hey, we're, we're sports in parallel to the Olympic movement or to traditional sports. I think there's a push to use para sports as like a more inclusive term because it, it doesn't necessarily mean like, like Kyle mentioned with goalball, goalball is a sport in its of itself that has not been adapted from any other sport. There, there are some people pushing to say para sport instead of adaptive sports uh, because it's a little bit more inclusive, but to use that word para, like a paralegal, it's in parallel. And it's interesting too, I think, because what Stephanie refers to is I think oftentimes I actually think of para in a, almost like a more specific thing to differentiate it specifically from parasport from Special Olympics, which are a, a lot of people get confused when they hear that I work with the Paralympics. They're like, oh, you know, Special Olympics came to this town. I'm like, oh, they're, I think they both have their uses, their their purposes, but they're very different as far as what their goals are and and what population they serve and how they run their, their competitions. So in my mind, it's funny because I kind of think para being a little bit more specific to those sports run under the auspices of the International Paralympic Committee, whereas adaptive sport kind of includes special and para Paralympics specifically. But yeah, it's interesting how it, it's evolving for sure. I know when I was in Dallas-Fort Worth, we named our organization the Adaptive Sports Coalition. But like I remember asking our members, well, should we be naming it the Adaptive and Para Sports? And it was interesting what some of the community members' responses were because there was this thought that, oh, well, para means people with physical disabilities. And, you know, it just depends on who you talk to. I think it like the language has evolved quite a bit over the past few decades. But yeah, like Kyle said, Paralympic movement versus Special Olympics, um, different organizations that run those. Traditionally, Special Olympics is more focused on athletes with intellectual disabilities, whereas the Paralympic movement is actually inclusive of three types of disability categories, physical impairment, visual impairment, and intellectual impairment. And which sports involve which types of impairments is, it's totally dependent on the sport. (laughs) So lots of complicated nuances as we go down this. Absolutely, yes. Absolutely. Yeah, which we're not going to get into all those specifics today. I mean, certainly we can have a, we can have a multi-series on all the differences and all the things about, hey, we may, you know, we may do that in the future with this for sure. Yeah. I'm kind of curious just how each of you got involved with Paralympics and para-athletes and all that just in general, like what's kind of got you excited about it? What made you interested in it? How you specifically got involved in this particular area? I grew up doing a lot of different sports, but ended up specializing in swimming growing up. And, you know, I remember swimming alongside other athletes with disabilities. And I think that was my first exposure to it. But I guess I really became passionate about 
working with athletes with disabilities when I was in medical school. And I went to a medical school that had a really strong physical medicine and rehab department and exposure. It was one of the few medical schools that had a mandatory PM&R rotation. And so I think because of that, we had a lot of exposure to different types of adaptive sports too. One of my mentors, Dr. Jen Fu Cheng, who's a Pete's rehab doc in New Jersey, which is where I did my medical school training, started an adaptive climbing program. And so a bunch of us medical students used to volunteer there. And, you know, I loved working with kids and I loved doing sports medicine. And so even before I found out about the field of pediatric sports medicine, I found out about pediatric adaptive sports. I, I, I guess I always embraced that attitude of inclusivity and providing opportunities and access for people with all types of different abilities. I kind of got into it from a, a different direction a little bit. I became obsessed with cross-country skiing at the tail end of college. And then that that persisted through, still, it still persists. <laughs> but uh, when I went back to Madison for, for fellowship uh, through various ways, I knew that they had a, a pro cross-country ski team. There aren't that many in the, in the U.S., but at the time, one of the premier ones was based in, in Madison. Through various ways, I, I got in touch with the executive director of that, of that program, and offered to be their team doc. So I started out as being the team doc for this team, and the executive director became interested in parasport. He grew up in Russia. I don't know if they had a presence at that time in the cross-country skiing world. But he organized for one of the Paralympic Nordic Skiing World Cups to come to northern Wisconsin. And along with that, at that time, they had a pretty significant shortage of classifiers for the Paralympic Nordic skiing and biathlon. And so he offered to me, he was just like, Hey, Kyle, would you have any interest in taking a seminar to become a classifier? And at that time, there were really just two medical classifiers for Paranordic skiing worldwide. And, and I was just like, sure, I have no idea what this is. Um, but kind of just dove in and really was, that was my primary role for a number of years was a classifier and, you know, went to Sochi as a, as a, IPC as International Paralympic Committee official and started to get to know more about it and more about adaptive sports. And through the classification system, whatever, I eventually got to know the the U.S. team. And a couple of years after Sochi, they were looking for a team doc and they approached at that time, I was already working with the U.S. ski team and stuff like that, but they approached me to be their team doc. And so with that, I became more of a on-site team involved medical care provider specifically for this adaptive team. And that's been fantastic. And since then, it's just kind of become my niche because there, there aren't that many of us who who do it. Yeah, that's kind of my, that was my path. Kyle, that's so, I didn't know that about you because that's a similar pathway to how I became mm -hmm. team physician too, was I was a medical classifier first. And when you meet a lot of the, the TED team physicians of all these different national governing bodies through the USOPC, most of them don't go through the classification route. So yeah. that's, that's pretty cool that both of us went through that pathway. <laughs> well, it's fascinating because the classification process, I mean, for me, it was just intellectually, it was just, it was fascinating. You know, as I got into this, I had not seen this before. And, and what Stephanie, you were talking about earlier, which is the basis of a lot of the classification process, it was based early on with paraplegia, which is basically spinal cord injuries. It's fascinating because it just, we're seeing more and more different kinds of impairments that are coming through. And so it was interesting because it's, it's, as we we're just talking about, it's a, it's a changing area, you know, and, and things are constantly being. Yeah. It's a lot more medical complexity now these days too. Yeah. Yeah, it is. And there's a lot of things that were not ever envisioned. You know, it, I remember distinctly one time where a bunch of us classifiers were getting together kind of sort of joking, saying, hey, what if someone came in with, 
you know, bilateral hip disarticulation. Oh, that what, you know, I, I don't know what class it would be in. And suddenly literally the next person who came in, came in on a skateboard and was a bilateral hip disarticulation, you know, a, a guy with no femur bones. And so suddenly it was like, whoa, here it is right here. And so suddenly you're trying to adapt these systems that have been around for a long time, but trying to, you know, apply them in a fair and consistent way when sometimes they haven't been, no one ever conceived that these things would, would be encountered, these conditions. Yeah. I mean, I mean, it's evolved quite a bit. So, so for those who are not familiar with classification, it's, it's kind of how we make para or adaptive sports fair in terms of competition. So like in traditional sports, we'll compete by age or by gender or by, by weight class in some sports. Right. And so you can imagine in, in these adaptive sports for people with all these different types of impairments or disabilities, well, you can't just compete against those categories. This is not fair. And so the, the classification process basically levels the playing field by taking a look and doing like a medical exam on these athletes and taking a look at how their medical diagnosis impacts their impairment, which then in turn impacts their function in their sport. And so it, it therefore it's a, it's a sport specific process because you can imagine, you know, someone who's missing a finger it's going to impact them way more in the sport of archery than it is in swimming. Every, every sport has its own system and it gets super complicated because, you know, like Kyle said, you know, you see a lot of these rare conditions, but I think now as medical technology has, it has gotten better. And also the marketing and awareness of adaptive and para sports has improved. There are a lot of athletes with super rare conditions that you see coming through classification or, athletes who have multiple different conditions. Like I've seen athletes with brain injuries and spinal cord injuries and amputees. And by the way, they've got this other condition going on <laughs> and you have to figure out like, oh my gosh, how am I going to classify them based off this protocol? You can have to piece it together. And so I agree, Kyle, it's so rewarding because it really challenges the highest level of your medical expertise and apply it to a really rewarding way to help these athletes get involved in sports. So work us through a little bit of that. I'm, I'm kind of curious. So you see an athlete, you know, you guys can pick one of your sports that you're you're doing classifying for and just just kind of walk us through a little bit of that. You know, if an athlete comes in, what what's kind of like a classification system? You know, I know you said you're swimming, right, Stephanie? Yeah, yeah. yeah and then skiing for Kyle. I mean, give me kind of an example of how, how you would classify them for each of those sports. Like, how, how does that work? I think the, the first step really is that I think, and this exists, I think, across the board is just say, Hey, is this an eligible? And we're talking specifically about parasport here. It's different for other systems. And again, adaptive sport is, is really broad, you know? And so at some point adaptive basketball, it could be anybody, as long as they're in a wheelchair can play wheelchair basketball, right? Like they're different sports that have different things. And not, and not all sports have a classification system yet. Like I think climbing just developed one, but yeah. I think that, yeah. So, I, and I think a lot of times for Paralympic sport, the initial question is, hey, is this an eligible impairment? Things that would be eligible would be things like loss of limb, lack of range of motion at a joint, uh, loss of muscle power in, in a limb, and certain types of ataxia, uh, dwarfism yeah. for, for some sports. Other things are not eligible. So pain, you know, if someone is limited purely by pain, that's not going to be eligible for competing in Paralympic sport. Similarly, like what Stephanie said, like, hey, in some sports, maybe a finger in general would be eligible, but it may or may not be depending on your sport. The next question then is whether or not they meet the minimum impairment criteria. So in this case, hey, if you're missing some fingers on one hand, or one finger, you may not 
you, yes, you're missing a finger, but you're not going to hit the minimum impairment. So again, you're not going to be able to compete in Paralympic sport in this sport. But if you're missing three or four or all of them, then maybe you do hit the minimum criteria. And then once you get that, once you say, all right, you have an eligible impairment, you meet the minimum minimum impairment criteria, then it's a matter of saying, hey, which sport class specifically are you going to compete in? So that, again, trying to make something of a fair playing field there and competing against people with similar functional impairments. And every sport has its own protocol of how you evaluate them, too. You know, I had the opportunity recently to shadow some of my mentors in para track and field classification. And I was like, man, you guys do it so differently from how we do it in para swimming. In para swimming, it's a point system. I go off of the medical condition and I look at it and I say, okay, these are your your eligible medical conditions, like Kyle said. Then I say, okay, based off my medical expertise, I know your medical conditions cause this impairment, right? So like if you have an amputation, I know you should not have hypertonia or impaired coordination or anything like that, unless you have like some other medical condition, like a brain injury on top of it, right? So I'm not going to evaluate you for something your medical condition should not cause. So for swimming, we do limb measurements for, for our athletes with amputations versus our athletes with hypertonia, like spasticity, secondary to cerebral palsy. We do this like really crazy <laughs> coordination exam that I've never seen done clinically. Um, and we have them on the bench and we, we have them move through different directions. Um, and we kind of look at, okay, how is your coordination? And we grade it on a scale of zero to five to take a look. It's kind of similar to the other, you know, systems we use on a scale of zero to five, like manual muscle testing, but we're taking a look at like how jerky their movements are. And then we grade them on all these different movements. And then we kind of calculate everything up. And there's a total of 14 classes in swimming for each stroke. So there's an S stroke, which includes everything in that sagittal plane. So freestyle, backstroke, and butterfly. And then you've got breaststroke, which is its own class SB. And then the individual medley SM has its own class as well. So there's 14 classes in each of those. (laughs) And then the physical impairments, they take up 10 of the classes. And then the visual impairments take up three of the classes. And then the intellectual impairments all are in one class. So swimming is like super complicated versus like you have some other sports where there are like only five classes. (laughs) When I shadowed track and field, they didn't do a point system like that. They go off descriptions of like, okay, you have, you know, hemiparesis, spastic hemiparesis from cerebral palsy. So you're going to go in this category. So, so it's interesting how every sport does it. And, and the other thing I always remind people too, is it's classification, classifications always evolving. It started back in the day with the sport of netball that we know of, which was, you know, preceded wheelchair basketball. And back then it was just athletes with spinal cord injury. And I've heard it two different ways. I've heard it. They just divided it by athletes with complete versus incomplete spinal cord injury. Um, I've also heard it like they divided by cervical versus lumbar, but you can imagine like there's so much variability even within those categories. And so I always remind my athletes too, because they get so nervous about classification that, Hey, it's always evolving and it may change in the future. Now, are there multiple people that are doing an evaluation for classification at once, or is it just one person makes that decision and that's it? Do they have like a, like, is there like a decision making if, you know, oh, no, no, they're really not this class, but they're this class. Does, does there, is there some debate that's involved there? Yeah, usually it's a classification, at least for, and again, this might be in different in different sports, but at least with Nordic skiing, it's, there's, there's a classification panel, usually it's two classifiers. And they'll make an initial decision, uh, judgment. Sometimes it's it's provisional or the athlete is specified that they need to be reviewed in X 
six months or in a year or two years. Sometimes it's uh, it's much more simple. It's limb deficiencies tends is not an evolving thing. It's much less much less controversial. Like I've had some athletes with progressive conditions, and they get put on the classification appointment slots every two years or what have you. And yes, the panel is two. It's usually a medical and a technical, but sometimes you can have two medicals depending on the situation. And then the athletes are always allowed to protest too if they feel like they didn't agree and then they can get reviewed by a different panel. It kind of turns your head upside down a little bit when you're doing this because it's one of the few times where, at least in Nordic skiing, is you know the athletes actually want to be classified as most impaired as they can be, you know? So even though you're like, oh man, if you consider like, sometimes you're talking to the athletes and they're like, oh no, you can walk. This is great news. They'll, they'll be like, no, I cannot walk. I don't want to, you know, like it's suddenly it's like what you think is good news for athletes at that level. It can be devastating because it puts them in a different category and makes it harder for them to, to compete and potentially do well. And that's the difference. A lot of big difference between parasport and special Olympics that Special Olympics is all about what you can do at the time. And it's all about inclusivity and everybody gets an award for participating. They try to clump people in like everybody who can run a 50 meter dash and in roughly this amount of time are placed in the same group. And so you're just by actual demonstrated ability, whereas the para sport is really about winning. And it's much more about what you think could be possible based on the impairment, not how you do right now. So it's, it, it's really, it really, it really kind of as a classifier can kind of mess with your head because suddenly it's like, and, and it, it gets very controversial and there are protest things where they can protest their classification and come back and say, no, I disagree. I feel like I should be in this class. Then they get evaluated by a different classification panel. I've seen younger athletes lately at some of the events across the country and, and you get parents, you get super angry <laughs> because they're like, my kid, no, I, I read it. And I think my kid should be this. And you're like, you know, talk about like questioning the medical professionals and the whole system, but you have to explain it to them. And, you know, they're like, well, then why is X, why is that person that class? And, you know, it's really hard because I always have to remind people too, that not every disability or impairment is visible. And if there's a lot of HIPAA involved in classification too, so you can't openly like share like, you know, like age groups and gender, like weight class, that's pretty open in other sports. But then for classification, it's very personal to the athletes. And like Kyle said, it's very controversial. And for my, my elite Paralympic athletes in swimming, like some of them get super nervous about classification. I mean, I've seen like medical complications from that. Like one of my athletes before she gets classified, like she gets so cramped up, like she will not eat. And then one time she got hypoglycemic and started having seizures. So it's definitely like a medical complication you have to think about covering these events. And it's like a serious, like, you know, classification is a big deal to these athletes, you know, something that the Olympic athletes don't have to worry about. And sometimes it's a hard conversation too, when you, I've had this situation where someone comes before a classification panel and they obviously have an impairment, but they don't meet that minimum criteria. And so suddenly it's like, Hey, I encourage you to participate in sports because it's really important and it's good for your health and blah, you know, like all these things that we know that sports and physical activity provide. Unfortunately, you don't meet these minimum criteria. So I encourage you. And the thing is with adaptive sport, a lot of times for this, it's like, hey, you can still please, <laughs> you know, go skiing, even enter local races. You just can't compete at the international level of Paralympic cross-country skiing. But it's kind of like it's it's a hard line sometimes because they're they're really invested in it they may have been training a lot already and it's like oh you're yes you're impaired you're just not impaired enough and that's that can be a really hard conversation to have folks so yeah yeah because they feel like they don't belong Mm. 
in either group because then they're like, well, I'm not good enough to swim or compete in other uh, traditional sports. But then you're now, now you're saying I don't qualify for para sports. Like, you know, it's it's really tricky. That's a good transition to talk about. You know, we think about an athlete's disabilities potentially as far as a, a barrier for them participating. And obviously that's the benefit of a, a para sport or an adaptive sport is that there, there is now an opportunity for them to participate. And obviously it sounds like, you know, we have this little gray area here that could be a barrier to them participating if they don't fit into that little classification that you guys were alluding to and talking about a lot. But what other barriers do these adaptive athletes have to deal with besides just their own disabilities with participating? I think there's a lot, a lot, like you just mentioned, we've been talking a lot about like the highest level, like the most, you know, competitive level. But I think at its base level, we know a lot of folks, uh, pediatric specifically children with disabilities, they have, you know, increased rates of obesity. They are less likely to participate in physical activity. They've, they're more sedentary. They, you know, and I think a lot of this has to do with these barriers that exists. And some of it is just knowledge. Some is implicit bias against folks with disabilities, whether it's, you know, because a lot of our current sport structure is based on winning. And so suddenly they're excluded because they may or may not help a team to win. I think that there's issues of even if there is a, a program nearby, there might be other same issues that exist for everybody involved trying to be involved in sports now, which is cost, transportation, various societal impacts of it. I think that there's general different expectations for kids with disabilities as far as how active they should be. Even though the general recommendations that they get the same amount of activity, I think the generally societal expectation is, oh, we don't really know what to do. And so they kind of just give up. And that's, I think, a, a lot of things. Knowledge, knowledge of programs, knowledge of of the programs for how to adapt their activities to folks with disabilities. It's everything that exists for normally abled people that then is there's X number of steps beyond that. And especially the ones, the athletes who have more medical complexity, and I say athletes loosely, you know, anyone who participates in physical activity, right? I think they have a lot more medical appointments to attend to too. And a lot of times their medical providers are not focused on, well, are you physically active? You know, like for them, it's a luxury to even focus on some of those things. And so it makes it difficult. I mean, and I think there's a lot of benefits for, you know, for kids with disabilities to participate in sports. Obviously all the same ones again of normally abled kids. But I think there's also times when, you know, a lot of the, the kids get even more pride of just being considered an athlete, you know, or the enjoyment of being on a team or socialization. There's obviously, and there's been shown there's good physical benefits for kids with disabilities, with specific disabilities for being more involved in in sports, whether it's, you know, increased walking speed or increased physical fitness, ability to do things or improved quality of life for specific things, whether it's cerebral palsy or autism, you know, increased ability to focus. There's a lot of benefits for specific disease processes. But I think there's other things where it's just like, hey, they get a lot of pride out of considering themselves athletes, you know? And so I think that like, if we can provide them with more opportunities and be aware of these barriers. And, you know, obviously this is a long list of barriers and, and it's, I hate to put more on just the parents because it's not just parents thing. So parents need to do, and they're already enough advocates for the kids anyway, but there is, it's similar to so many things. It's multifactorial and we need to, you know, kind of advocate for the individual patient, but we also need to advocate for some, some societal change as far as like, Hey, schools based on legislation, they need to include everybody. Do they really? Uh, often, maybe they don't. And they require things like Tatiana McFadden had to go 
to court in Maryland to say, hey, we aren't actually providing similar opportunities for people with disabilities as others? And how do we educate teachers to, to be able to learn how to appropriately adapt their activities to include everybody? So it's, and it's not to lay blame on anybody. It's just more of a societal approach. So it's kind of like, yeah, we need to take the individual approach, whether we're doctors or friends or parents or more, you know, are aware of folks with disabilities. We also have to look at that more bigger picture societal policy level approach to even if these laws exist, whether it's Title IX or whatever else, how do we make sure that they're implemented? And, you know, in fact, we are following through with those. I agree, Kyle. I and mean, I think you brought up athlete identity too. And like, I've seen that very strongly in a lot of my adaptive sports athletes where sports kind of provides them an avenue where they feel like they're normal again and they can forget about their disability or their impairment. And we did a research survey a few years ago on our national team pair of swimmers. And it was a qualitative study where we interviewed some of the athletes and a bunch of them reported that like, you know, the impact of injury on them Yes, you know, like no one wants to get injured in sports, but I think I would argue that it impacts our para athletes even more because now they can't do something that they that makes them feel normal in society and it, it takes that away from them and and you know that time off from sports it really impacts them a lot. And so I think, you know, I always when I'm talking with other medical providers, you know, I I I caution people to be careful about, yes, we, we do want to talk to our athletes about medical contraindications and anything like that. But if there's a way to help our athletes still stay involved, like, please don't just shut them down. Like, <laughs> that's the easy answer, but it's not always the right answer for our athletes. I remember the other thing I was going to say, too, is something when we talk about access, I think... A lot of times in marketing, we see the more visible disabilities, like people with amputations, maybe someone who had a stroke, you can see it more visibly. But I think a lot of times we don't see some of the individuals with more complicated or severe functional impairments who may represent some of the lower classes in, when I say classes, the classification system. I think access to to, to our more functionally impaired athletes is even more significantly impacted. And I think Absolutely. Kyle mentioned knowledge. I think understanding that, hey, even people who have significantly impaired functional statuses can still get involved in sports in some way. Like there are sports, there are parasports like Bacha that are intended for athletes with much more severe impairment. Even in swimming, there are people who are in power chairs that you would not think could swim safely and, and can do it, you know, and, and maybe able to swim faster than some other people who don't have any impairment. I think not forgetting about some of our individuals with more significant impairment as well. And I think going along those lines, I think a lot of times medical providers even will sometimes who don't have a lot of experience with a, adaptive sports or people who require adaptive experiences, even medical providers can sometimes have this along with parents and friends and stuff and just society can have this perception that participation in sports is unsafe or too risky. It's kind of getting into that, almost that like vulnerable child's type role. And when actually, Hey, if we can, you know, help empower, you know, kids or, or persons with disabilities to, to take acceptable risk that actually can make them feel much more empowered and improve their self-efficacy and things like that, rather than saying, Oh, you can't do that. You know, like, oh, that's too risky. We sh you, you might get hurt that way. You know, and I think that's a lot of times people aren't aware of what the options are or aren't willing to take a moment to stop and think about it. 
I think a lot of times it's like, oh, I don't want you to get hurt. You better not play this. You know, you better not participate. And I think that sometimes medical providers can do that. I mean, they have a, you know, PCPs now have such a long list of things that you need to cover in well child checks. And I think it's really hard to say, hey, how can we get you more physically active in general? And B, let's problem solve all these barriers that we talked about to figure out ways to approach those so that you can be more physically active in ways that you want to be that, yes, there's risk, but there's also a huge risk to just sitting in your wheelchair and not being active at all. So I think that there's, again, it's kind of like empowering people to take acceptable risk and helping them see that that's an option. We're going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we will talk more about adaptive sports. Wouldn't it be cool if your advertising could last forever? It can with perpetual advertising. Here's how it works. Magazine, radio, and television ads are efforts that people might see or hear once, and then they're lost forever. Perpetual advertising provides you with the chance for repeat exposure and replayability weeks, months, even years after it's originally inserted inside a podcast. So even after your advertising is included in a podcast years ago, those efforts are still impactful, providing you with true return on investment. Real impact, thanks to perpetual advertising. Are you ready to change the way you and your company or organization advertises? Find out more and launch a unique perpetual advertising effort right now by visiting twoguystalking.com forward slash sponsors. Dr. Mark Halstead here. Do you like what you're hearing on the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast? If you want to learn how your business, organization, or effort can benefit from my focused audience of professionals interested in pediatric sports medicine, connect with us and let's have a conversation. You can reach out to us at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. Thought about a career in voiceover? Need a great, cost-effective, on-hold message for your organization or business? Don't know where to start? Check out The Voice Farm, your one-stop shop for voiceover needs. Check it all out now by accessing The Voice Farm at voicefarmers.com and see what difference can be made with a company that is truly outside the box. From The Voice Box, voicefarmers.com. That's voicefarmers.com. And now back to the podcast. So I do want to follow up a little bit on what you were just talking about, Kyle. And, and Stephanie, you mentioned all the the previous, uh, you know, just you discussed, you know, lots and lots of doctor's visits and those types of things. How would you advise a primary care physician to start having that discussion about considering doing physical activity? You know, obviously, again, there's this laundry list of stuff that they need to talk about. And there's a lot more things that we need to address just from a health and medical standpoint. But how do we just broach that topic or even keep it in their minds so that's something that they're thinking about, you know, when you see someone that's in a wheelchair, that may not be the first thing in their mind is, how am going to get this person involved in sports? How do we start getting people to have that mindset of thinking about getting this person to be active in, in something? And it doesn't necessarily obviously have to be competitive, but do you guys have any thoughts or suggestions on that? I think you can keep doing similar things to what you do with normally able persons. I think even asking the question of, exercise as a vital sign, like how much do you exercise? When do you exercise? At least it starts to validate that that approach and the awareness of it. And you may not have time to to broach it heavily or in depth. And I think with things as you get a longer list of of issues you need to to address, follow visits for that, you know, can be can certainly be helpful. But I think 
even having an awareness of adaptive sports organizations in the area to help point them towards or websites with the internet. You can access this this information more, but I think it does take that encouragement to, to do that. But it's it's very similar to promoting physical activity in, in any population where, you know, leading by example, exercising your, you know, as a physician yourself, uh, role modeling that behavior, you know, even just broaching that conversation, even if it's just as little as asking how much you exercise, hey, we recommend this amount is something. It's more than just glossing over it because you don't have time for any of it. I guess it's kind of a similar approach where you have to kind of parse it out a little bit, but having some easy go-to resources and asking that question, I think is really important by itself. I absolutely agree. I think another component too is visibility is really important. And so, you know, what's hanging up on your clinic walls in the waiting room? If your patient population includes people with disabilities, you know, consider putting up posters of, you know, a Paralympian up on the wall or, or, you know, kids doing different types of sports that represent all types of abilities. I think that's really important for role modeling and allowing your patient population to see, you know, what's possible. I think what Kyle was saying to you before is, I think one of the barriers for PCPs is time (laughs) because there's, there's a lot to cover. And I feel like, you know, administration is constantly pushing us to see more patients in shorter amounts of time. And so, you know, something that I know has been growing across the country is there's more specialists who are developing adaptive sports medicine programs or clinics. And so if there's one, if you have the opportunity to connect with one close to your area, I think that's a good opportunity. Otherwise, what I've done over time too, and of course I'm biased because I have a particular passion for adaptive sports, but every time I move, I, I, I kind of figure out, okay, what types of adaptive sports resources are available in my area. And I create like a Google spreadsheet. You know, I I let my patients have access to that so that they know who to contact. I try to partner with my recreation therapist if we have any in our hospital system and our physical therapists. because a lot of times they will be very knowledgeable too with what resources are are out there. And at least that's that's a good starting point. Sometimes if you have like a large department of PM&R, you may have some trainees or or students who are really go-getters and and you know, willing to collaborate to and help you do some of the legwork with with finding some of these resources too. Yeah. And if you guys have any specific resources, we'll be sure to include those just, you know, kind of some ideas. And you mentioned the interwebs. We can, in our show notes, include some uh, resources that you can look up and certainly hopefully help you and and as our listeners just out there, what may be locally accessible to you that you can use as a resource for sure. Let's spend some time focusing on the sports medicine side of things now. And what types of things do we need to think about uniquely for the adaptive athlete when we're assessing for injuries? There are a couple of classic like conditions that really only see in adaptive athletes. And I, I think we'll probably talk about that in a little bit. But I, at its base level, a lot of musculoskeletal injuries and sports medicine injuries are the same. It's just whether it's just like what the, what are the risks for them or not. But the treatment is can be very similar. Shoulder injuries, yes. People who are who are wheelchair users have increased risk of shoulder injuries. Though, if they're sedentary, they have incre- they have higher chance of shoulder pain if they don't participate in sports than those who do. But the treatment for these things, whether it's rotator cuff impingement or or a tendonitis, is the same. I think the biggest challenges of sports medicine doc working with adaptive sports is that it can be really hard to unload that area. So, as far as relative rest. For someone who is competing with the upper body, you know, mobility and injures their shoulder, it's really hard to find an alternative for them to continue to train and stuff sometimes. So it takes a little more creativity. The thing is, then you have to parse it down to like, hey, is this more of a pushing motion versus a pulling motion or things like that? Whereas if we're dealing with a normally abled swimmer 
you know, you can say, oh, you have shoulder, well, do some kicking sets for a little bit, work with PT, and then you can go back, you know, or modify stuff or vice versa. Like if someone hurts their ACL, it can be like, hey, maybe you can start biking before you can run and, you know, and things like that. But I think that one of the biggest challenges I have is just find that, that kind of alternatives for that relative rest thing. But a lot of times the treatment is very similar. And so I think that's one thing I think a lot of times folks who don't have experience with adaptive sports for medical providers, I think they get worried like, oh, I've never worked with them before kind of hesitate. And it's like, well, for the most part, minus a couple few things, which I'm sure we're going to talk about, treatment is very similar, you know? And so the, a lot of it, it's just, you treat them as a person and, you know, evaluate in them in a very similar way. So trying to take a, pull back the curtain a little bit and say, Hey, you know, it's not some magic beyond the curtain. It's a lot of it is very, very similar. Yeah, I agree. You start with what you know from traditional sports medicine. And then you say, okay, how do I customize this to the athlete that's sitting in front of me or standing in front of me? One of the big things that's come out is concussion evaluation and management in the para-athlete. And there's a consensus or a position statement now, now, and there's an ebook that came out, but basically, you know, you kind of, you know, it's kind of common sense in the sense that like, okay, if, if someone doesn't, if they're not able to stand, you're not going to do your traditional best testing, right? But there is a West test or you can check balance testing in the wheelchair or, you know, for someone who has baseline vestibular issues, well, maybe their bombs is going to be always positive. So I think, you know, just taking your traditional concepts and saying like, okay, how do I get creative evaluating my athletes? And I think that's something I love working with my athletes with disabilities is that I always have to think creatively and outside of the box. There's no protocol, <laughs> which makes it difficult sometimes when you're building an emergency action plan, but you have to be customized to the athletes. Something else I'll say too, yes, you know, you, they tend to get very similar musculoskeletal issues to our athletes without disabilities. Our wheelchair athletes tend to get more upper extremity injuries, at, at least based off of the data that we've seen from the Paralympic Games, a lot of the research has been done at the elite level because that's where you can access the data most easily. You know, as pediatric specialists, there's a bunch of us across the country working on getting more of that data for pediatrics, but I suspect it's similar. Also, don't forget, you know, I think I've seen people where they focus on the affected side too much. If someone has like an affected side, like hemiparesis or like a limb difference or deficiency, but don't forget that they probably are compensating on the side that is not affected by their medical condition. And you can sometimes see traditional musculoskeletal issues because of that compensatory techniques. I would say, and Kyle chime in here too, I think from my experience, and I know this is dependent on the sport too, but most of the athletes I see will be, you know, those with a limb deficiency or difference some type of hypertonia or spasticity from like cerebral palsy or traumatic brain injury or a stroke, you know, athletes with short stature. And so those athletes, you know, I think for limb deficiency, if they've got a prosthesis, I think just being familiar with wound care, I think is helpful and understanding like some cool tricks on how to evaluate if a socket's fitting appropriately. Lipstick's a helpful <laughs> way to see like where it, they're they're articulating on their socket and figuring out if there's like frictional forces that are causing injury for, you know, any type of tone issues. I think it's helpful to know your clinical tools to evaluate tone if you're not familiar. So like modified Ashworth or the Tardew can be helpful and recognizing that we don't always want to just treat their symptoms. If someone has an increase in their spasticity, 
you know, you always want to ask, well, why? Why was there a sudden change in their spasticity? Are they having a urinary tract infection? Because you don't want to just slap a Band-Aid on it and be like, oh, here's a baclofen, we'll fix it. You want to treat their underlying issue too. Being familiar with some of the assessment tools is helpful so that you know how to grade things so that when you reevaluate them, you can actually know if they got better or worse. And I think what Stephanie just said actually brings up a, one of the ways that I really think about the difference. The three probably primary areas if someone is covering adaptive sports for the first time, what do I need to worry about? And I, I think one is infection, because especially for folks like spinal cord injured patients, whether they're having to you know catheterize frequently or, or insensate below a certain level, infection can become an issue. And, and have, if you're traveling with that team to have appropriate antibiotics, that might cover if someone has already been, you know, is resistant, you know, or has resistant bugs, you know, so that's, that's one thing is infection. Number two is skin issues. Um, I think that's something we see very frequently, whether it's a spinal cord injury, uh, injured patient or someone with an amputation using prosthetics, but understanding kind of some wound care things, um, very common dermatologic changes in stumps, things like that, that you may or may not be. Oftentimes the dermatologic thing, it basically is like remove the pressure and assess the fit. You know, it's like, those are the two, two key, key things there for the infection. If someone's immediately like suddenly more spastic than usual, like looking for, Hey, what could those common things be that could cause infection? And then the third thing really is autonomic dysfunction. And, and that's boosting is a, is an intentional form of this, but for people who have a high spinal cord injury, if they have a noxious stimulus below that level, and they may not be able to feel it, but the, it'll still stimulate the sympathetic nervous system to stimulate the nervous sympathetic nervous system and can cause increased blood pressure and just, you know, catecholamine release, which f can be a benefit for performance. So some people can do this intentionally, in which case it's called boosting, but it can also be caused unintentionally, whether or not it's because the catheter is kinked and you're having urinary retention, or there's a strap that's too tight or frostbite, or there's a, you know, a toes dragging between spokes, you know, things like that, that can happen. And typically it leads to higher blood pressure and then that can be dangerous. But those are kind of the three things would be, you know, autonomic dysreflexia, skin issues and infection. Those are the primary things that would be that I think of if someone has to ask me in an elevator, what's the big difference between adaptive as a medical provider? What do I need to be prepared for? Those are the things that I typically would say are the things to be to think about. Athletes with intellectual impairment is a whole separate category, but also knowing like which sports may have athletes with intellectual impairment so that you know, you may want a family member, if available, nearby or a friend who knows their medical history to have a more reliable evaluation. And, and I would add one caveat to that, what I just said, too. I think with Special Olympics, where you're dealing with intellectual disabilities, sometimes those come along with, I'm biased because I work more with, with parasport and Paralympic sport. But if you're working with Special Olympics, there can be folks with intellectual impairments that also have other medical conditions going on, whether it's, you know, you're I'm going to bring up one that's out there, but Down syndrome with axial instability or predisposition to various cardiac conditions too. So syndromic things where, hey, you might need to pay attention to other things as well. Those three I just mentioned was really thinking about more at the physical impairment, Paralympic side of, side of sport for sure. Yeah, you, you see athletes who have multiple, like I've seen athletes who have physical, visual and intellectual, or, you know, we, we didn't mention yet on the podcast, but, you know, hearing impairment, there's a whole separate movement for that too with the Deaf Olympics. Hearing impairment in itself is not an eligible impairment for the Paralympic sports, but 
some athletes may have hearing impairment plus some other eligible impairment too. So just, I think being sensitive to all of these things that could be going on in athletes and just getting a thorough medical history can be helpful. So what ways can our sports medicine professionals get more involved with adaptive athletes and the adaptive athlete community? Number one is trying to find out what adaptive sports opportunities exist in your local community. More often than not, they probably are not connected with any sports medicine providers who help provide support. Actually, when I was in Kansas City for a fellowship, you know, my fellowship director, Greg Canty, was like, sure, you can go work with Midwest Adaptive Sports. And I, I approached them and I was like, who's your medical director for your upcoming wheelchair softball game? And they were like, what? no one. We, we just have like nurses who volunteer once in a while, but they're not official. And I was like, do you want me to build your emergency action plan? And they're like, what's it going to cost us? And I'm like, it's free. I'm a fellow, <laughs> you know, like, you know, a lot of them are just so grateful. They don't know that these resources are available to them. And I think we, we do need to improve access or equity to sports medicine support for athletes with disabilities. And so I'm like a huge advocate for that. And I know when I went for my first faculty position in Dallas-Fort Worth, I just reached out to all the different organizations and I needed help because there's so many organizations in Dallas-Fort Worth. I was like, I can't do it all every weekend, but I had residents and medical students help me too. But I, I would say, you know, connect with these groups. You know, you just have to get out there. You're never going to be prepared 100% for all the different situations that can happen. But I think having some baseline understanding, like Mark said, that there will be resources listed, but I think there's some good textbooks out there that can, you know, refresh your memory or give you some familiarity on how to evaluate some of these athletes, but absolutely nothing replaces, you know, just getting out there and, and building some experience. And I think at a, at a base level for anybody, it's just being open to, to treating adaptive athletes as, as patients and trying to just decrease those barriers to getting them involved in physical activity in general. Certainly I totally agree with Stephanie. If someone's interested in covering, you know, adaptive sports, I find it to be very rewarding. I think what you're just mentioning, Stephanie, is I think a lot of times para-sport and adaptive athletes are in some ways kind of an underserved population. A lot of times the, the athletes, when I'm working with them, A, they have a lot more medical needs. A lot of them don't actually have a medical home. As much as you'd think like, oh my gosh, they're more medically complex, they, they definitely should. I find they often don't. And any care you can give them is huge. And being open to, to treating anybody who comes in to your office is, is a huge first step. And then certainly reaching out to any community organizations nearby. I think just keeping an, an idea, like I do something very similar to what Stephanie does, where I have a on clearinghouse list of, of organizations in the area. And sometimes kids, there might be like, hey, I used to be a downhill skier and they like that. But other people might be, you might be like, oh, hey, Outdoors for All is a great group that does downhill skiing. But they're like, hey, I'm not really into the gravity during sport, I'm not, I'm a little more cautious or whatever. And then it's like, oh, hey, how can we get you in other sports? And sometimes it's just being like, hey, look through this list and see what you're interested in, because a lot of people have different thoughts. And yeah, you might know the wheelchair rugby team nearby, which is great, but maybe you find someone who's like, oh, no, I'd rather do something different, you know, than, than that. I, I want to do wheelchair racing or what have you. And so just having a lot of options that they can look through, I think is, is crucial. So just knowing what the options are, not being afraid if someone comes in who is an adaptive athlete and just encouraging physical activity with everybody. I think it is a start. And then if you're at all interested in it, there's such a need that I would encourage anybody who's at all interested in it to seek out those organizations because they need it and they will be super happy. Yeah, to absolutely. Have and, and it's a small world out there too. I found 
Kyle, I don't know if you found the same thing. Once I connect to one organization, they like start connecting me to all the different organizations and and word gets out there, you know, because it's one thing to just email places. But when you actually show up, they're like, because I think a lot of times these organizations, they get a lot of people who email them, but the ones who actually show up, they're like, okay, you're actually here for us. Um, So I, I always tell, you know, people who are my trainees who are interested in adaptive sports, you know, I'm like, don't just email them, go out and meet people. I wanted to touch something else that Kyle brought up to you that got me going was that made me think about something was, you know, there has been research that has shown that athletes with disabilities are underserved. They are less likely to go to medical providers for certain issues, whether it's maybe they don't recognize it as a medical issue or, or maybe their resilience level is a little higher, which sometimes can be an issue too, because sometimes they're a little too resilient <laughs> and push through and then they push through pain and they don't recognize they have an injury. Something that I don't think has been researched, but I've heard historically from other members in the community, from friends who have disabilities is I think something we talked about earlier is when they see medical providers, sometimes they're unfortunately in the past, there were medical providers who were like, no, you can't do this. No, you're we're worried about injury. And, and I think that unfortunately set this culture of mistrust of healthcare providers. And I've unfortunately seen that in some community members where they're like, I'm not going to this doctor because they're going to tell me I can't do something. So I'm not going to tell them about it. And so I think rebuilding, it's a lot of work to rebuild that trust and that culture of we're going to support you and we're going to focus on what you can do and not what you can't do. Well, we end our podcast with something we call the pearl of the podcast. This is each of you, your time to leave our listeners with that little take home point, that golden nugget or or two. I've had lots of people who have given me like a string of pearls of they've called it. So we'll start with Kyle. What's your pearl of the podcast? I would encourage people to, to just to get involved with it, not to be afraid of uh, adaptive sports and adaptive athletes. I think they are a little bit more complex, but it's also incredibly rewarding and, and it's needed. Our services as sports medicine providers are needed by that population. I think we can also encourage folks with disabilities to be physically active. And I think that helps exactly what Stephanie was saying, which it helps empower them to say, hey, this is what I can do. And help them realize whatever dreams they have of activity and go for it. Man, Kyle, you stole mine. (laughs) I'm going to add, yes, absolutely. Just jump in. You're never going to be fully prepared. And as you do more experience, you're going to get more experienced. The adaptive sports world is very small. You know, I think once you get involved, you're going to get to know all the other cool people involved in, in this area. The other thing I will recommend is experience also includes if you have the opportunity try out the sport yourself. I trained as a sit ski instructor out here in Colorado when I was a fellow and it was so crazy. And I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe my shoulders are acting as like my hip joints for weight bearing through the sit ski. Get into a, a sport chair to try it out and see how hard it is to propel and then be like, oh my gosh, I have to do this and dribble a ball. <laughs> but you know, it really does put yourself in the metaphorical shoes of, of an adaptive athlete and and get a really cool experience that you wouldn't otherwise have. I'd like to thank Dr. Stephanie Tao and Dr. Kyle Nagel for their time and expertise, as well as their commitment to caring for adaptive and Paralympic athletes. We'll be sure to have various resources and links to things we covered on the podcast today in our show notes, so check those out. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Pete Sports Spot and the same on Instagram. Also, be sure to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite streaming platform so you'll never miss an episode. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, your host, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you will join us for future episodes. Find my entire library of episodes at pediatricsportsmedicinepodcast.com. I'm Dr. Mark Halstead, and this has been the Pediatric Sports Medicine Podcast.